Our scripture today comes from the revelation given to the Apostle John. As we begin our study on this book of Revelation, we are today in chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and then chapter 2, 1 to 7. And as I mentioned before, 2, 1 to 7 is not in printed in your bulletin, just uh, have to listen out for that. Um, before we read that, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Good and gracious God, Lord, we uh, thank you for the word that you have given us. And we thank you today, Lord, for what was revealed to your servant for our behalf, for our sake. But Lord, as we come before this word you have given us, we know that we cannot understand these things that you have written and given to us without first your spirit to instruct us. And so, Lord, we pray that the same spirit that inspired these words would now move in our hearts and minds. Open them to your word, Lord, to your teaching, that we may hear, that we may read, and that we may understand. Lord, bless this holy reading of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. After we read this, there will be a brief moment of quiet meditation following. This is the revelation of John. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Chapter 2, 1 to 7. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested with those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I am the Alpha 
and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and his, who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember distinctly the first time I ever heard anything about the book of Revelation. I remember it very clearly in my mind as if it was uh, this momentous occasion in my life. I was about 12 or 13 years old. I was uh, at Camp Barstow. If any of y'all were in Boy Scouts, y'all are pretty familiar with Camp Barstow. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I was at Camp Barstow and it was at night and I was walking to the showers with a friend of mine, Bob Peacock. And it was, like I said, at night we're walking from our campsite in the woods to the shower, which is also in the woods. So we already had this, this moody setting all upon us. Dark, it's in the woods. And Bob Peacock asked me, we would talk sometimes about religious matters. He says, what do you think about the beast? And I was like, I mean, what beast are you talking about? He says, you know, the beast of the apocalypse. I said, I don't, I don't know about this beast of the apocalypse. He says, you've never heard about the beast of the apocalypse? And so he went to tell me this, this story. He said, this beast, this man's going to rise up who's going to make war against the church, and he's going to persecute God's people, and uh, people are gonna, someone's going to strike him down and he, to, uh, as a wound, and he's going to come back to life. I said, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't believe it. And then he really shocked me. He said, yeah, but it's in the Bible. It's like the Bible. And so then Bob Peacock, he, he laid the whole lurid tale out before me. The seals and the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the tribulation and the rising beast and the sun turning black and the moon turning red like blood. I was terrified. But I was fascinated too. So the first thing I did when I went home is I went and I, and I read, and lo and behold, everything Bob Peacock said was true. There at the back of the Bible, the very last book, the story we call Revelation. Now looking back, I was kind of amazed that it took me 12 or 13 years of my life before I heard about this book of Revelation. Because I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church every Sunday, Sunday school, the whole thing, youth group, all of it, Bible school, everything you can think of. And I never heard the story about Revelation. Now, granted, it's, it's probably not a story you want to tell kids. But at the same time, you would think at some point I would have picked up this talk about the end of the world and, and how it was predicted and what it meant. But I went to a, a mainstream Protestant church, Presbyterian church in Columbia, and like a lot of mainstream Protestant churches, we didn't talk about Revelation. And even after I had heard about it from Bob Peacock and read it on my own, we still didn't talk about Revelation a lot in church. So even going to seminary, you might be surprised to know, we didn't talk a lot about Revelation. The only exposure I had to it in seminary was at the very end of a New Testament survey course, New Testament 2, we spent maybe 30 minutes on the book of Revelation. And most of that 30 minutes was to tell us that most scholars believe that what is in Revelation is either exaggerated, not true, or never is going to happen. 
we don't talk about revelation a lot in the mainstream church. In fact, we have a, a cycle, a three-year cycle of suggested scripture topics that you can preach about in church. It's called the common lectionary. And in this common lectionary, there's over 160 readings in it, and only six come from the book of Revelation. And of those six, none of them talk about the tribulation, none talk about the seals, none talk about the bowls of God's anger, and they certainly don't come anywhere near talking about Satan, the dragon, or the Antichrist. It seems like the mainstream churches have really put themselves at arm's distance from the book of Revelation. And if you talk to a lot of people, a lot of leaders in those churches, you'll find that there's actually a little bit of, what can I say, maybe even embarrassment about this book. You see, there is a type of person that dwells a lot on Revelation. And you probably are thinking of somebody already in your head of a type of person that dwells a lot in Revelation. They don't have a really good reputation. Now, in the, in the theological language of Revelation studies, we call those people premillennial dispensationalists. Now, I'm not going to tell you or get into all whatever what a premillennial dispensationalist is. You can Google it when you get home. Some of you might be Googling it right now. But just know this, a premillennial dispensationalist, at least today, is the kind of person that is today obsessed with the book of Revelation. Think of the hellfire and brimstone type preachers. Think of your real uh, reactionary fundamentalist type believers, those that are waiting for the rapture. And they'll give you this belief that the world in Revelation, what is it all about is, is, is showing us how the world's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until God finally loses his patience. And he brings the whole experiment come crashing to a halt. In fact, among a lot of mainstream denominations, those that are obsessed with revelation are actually borderline cults. And we could garner some truth to that. Because after all, most cults, most cults from Jonestown to Heaven's Gate to the Branch Davidians, most cults you'll find are people that are obsessed with the book of Revelation. See, if we understand it properly, we know that this is it's kind of a dangerous book. And in fact, can be a very dangerous book. It's a shame, though, that we have distanced ourselves from this dangerous book because it is also a critical book. Here in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, expresses something that is central to our faith. Expresses an idea that is central to our identity. It tells us who we are. And what Revelation reminds us is this, that we are people that are waiting for the return of Jesus. That's who we are. That is central to our identity and who we are and what we do. We are people waiting for the return of Jesus. We're not here just to be nice. We're not here just to do good things. We're not here just to host Bible studies and worship and, and ice cream socials and potluck dinners. I love all those things. But we're here primarily to await the return of our Lord. And all those things we do, the nice things and the Bible studies and the potluck dinners, we're doing them partly because we're waiting on Jesus to come back. And we don't want him to come back and find out, 
find out that we're not doing the work that he asked us to do and following the commands that he gave us. And that's what this book is all about. It's about how Jesus is going to come back to this world. Now, as we start, I want to point out something crucial to you, and that's what the name of this book is. It is a book they call Revelation, as in to reveal. The Greek word is apocalypse. This is the apocalypse of John. And normally we think the word apocalypse means disaster, everything falling apart, buildings burning into civilization. But the word apocalypse in Greek actually means to reveal something. And it's important to know that because as confusing as this book is, the goal of the book is not to confuse us. The goal of the book is not to obscure. As we see from the title, the goal of the book is to reveal, is to show us something. Look at this, how it starts out in, in 1.1. 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave John to show his servants the things that must soon take place. That's why Jesus gave this revealing to John, to show his servants, show us, the church, the things that must soon take place. And the reason he gave us his book is to prepare us for what's coming. Is to prepare us for what is on the horizon, on our future, preparing us, first of all, for the return of Christ. And second of all, to prepare us for all the tribulation and the upheaval that is going to prelude the return of our Lord. But understanding this book, at least in part, as much as we human beings can understand this book, is key to understanding the plan of God. Because Revelation shows us, at least in part, what the future of the world holds. Which is our future, the future of the church, and in fact, the future of everybody, whether they believe it or not. See, we can know in this book where all this, and when I say this, human activity, earth, creation, we know where this is all going. We know what the point of it all is. The story of Revelation is the story of all human history. The history of of human activity, of the earth, of the universe itself. All human history is converging to this point. The story we have in Revelation. Now most people, if you ask them, they'll call this a story of the end times, right? And they they mention Revelation, so this is the end times. And, And they're right in a sense, it is an end. It's an end of, of this stage of, of, uh, of our existence. It's the end of the age. But to call it the end doesn't really reflect what this truly is. Because this book is not about the end. It's more about the completion. This is a book about fulfillment. This is God's work being finished as it was intended to be finished. Now, like I said, a lot of the the popular way of looking at uh, Revelation today is dominated by this premillennial dispensationalist view. There's some of the hellfire and brimstone that that the book of Revelation is a story about God losing his patience. And that Revelation shows us how the world gets worse and worse and worse until finally God is just, he's so fed up with it, he's just going to drop the hammer and say, all right, I've had enough. You've messed up my creation too much. It's time to bring this all to an end. But that's not the story at all. 
I mean, there are stories in here of things getting worse, but that's not the story about this book. This is a book about God's plan. This is a book about how his kingdom is going to be fulfilled. This is a book about heaven and earth being remade. And in heaven and earth being remade, the work of creation is finally complete. This is the story of God's plan. And it was his plan from day one. Yes, there is disaster. Yes, there is tribulation. Yes, there are evil people working in evil ways all throughout the book. And God does not condone it. And God does not make them act this way. But what God is showing us is this is my plan. This is what I'm going to do to complete creation, to complete the work of the church. But I'm going to warn you, there's forces of evil out there. There's the force that in Revelation they call the dragon, which is a symbol for Satan that wants to see this stopped. That the forces of evil are going to do everything in their power to see that this plan does not come to fruition, but ultimately they will fail. And so he gave us this revelation, this revealing to tell us what is going to come. And John was given very specific instructions. He, he was given to write, he said, write down all these things that you see in this vision. And on top of that, I want you to write seven letters to seven different churches. There were all churches in what was called Central Asia then, but what today is known as, as modern-day Turkey. There were seven churches all in, all in their modern-day Turkey. And he said, I want you to send these seven letters to the seven churches along with this vision that we call Revelation that begins after chapter 4. Now, even though he sent it to these seven churches, the message, the letters to the seven churches, are actually to us as well. It's a letter to the whole church. It's a letter to the, to the universal church, to every believer in Christ Jesus. And the reason why we know that is because he sent it to seven churches. And as we look at Revelation, as we, as we go through it and study it, you're going to see the number seven appear all over the place. There's seven stars. There's seven lampstands. There's, there's seven seals. There's seven trumpets. There's seven bowls of God's anger. And today it was seven churches that received seven different letters. Now, what's significant about the number seven in Revelation is that it is the number that represents completeness. So anytime you hear seven, there is a completeness to it, and God's plan is always being uh, reflected in the number seven through this book because God's plan is about completeness. It's his plan coming to completeness. So when he sends it to seven churches, what we can read into that is to know that he's sending it to all the churches. It's a message to every church, every church that existed then, every church that has existed since then, every church that exists now, including us. So chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation are these letters to the churches, and it's a temptation I know I have to kind of skip over it. I'm getting to the good stuff, you know. Let me get to all the, the horsemen and the battles and the, and the stars falling from the sky, you know, all, all the really weird stuff. And, and, and we skip over these seven letters, but it's crucial that we read them because that is the message to us at the beginning of this vision. It's an important message to each and every believer in each and every church to prepare us for what is to come. For in these seven letters, and I only read one of them today, I read the one that was written to the church in Ephesus, and 
I encourage you to read these chapters 2 and 3. We'll go over more detail when we study this, go to the Wednesday study. But read through these because it gives us all that we need to know to prepare for what comes after that. Chapter 4 and beyond with, with the beast and the dragon and, and all the strange things that happen. But what we see in these seven letters is, is a warning to each of us. The warning to the church. And the message that he gives over and over again in these seven letters is that if we are going to survive, what we need is a complete faith. No halfway faith, no partial faith, no just getting it done a little bit. What we need to have is a complete faith. Let me tell you what I'm, describe what I'm talking about. In one of the churches, the church we read today in Ephesus, he told them, you're doing good. You keep sound doctrine. You're really good at this sound doctrine. However, you're lacking something. You used to do works of great love and charity you stop doing those you see what i mean by complete faith you've got the doctrine thing down but you don't have the works of love and charity down and your faith in me needs to be a complete faith to another church he says you're doing good works you're doing lots of the works of love and charity but you're messing up in something that you've let some immorality creep in to your church some things that keep you more than pure in one church in there, there, he notices there's a lot of enthusiasm, or at least an imperative energy, but he says, it only looks like you're energetic. Truly, you're spiritually dead. You need a complete faith. In another church, he warns him, he says, you're very rich, and it looks like you've got it all, but the truth is, you're complacent. You've become lukewarm. Because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you from my mouth. And these are problems the ancient churches have, but it's interesting to note these are, these are modern problems too. And in every one of the churches that John describes in Revelation, there is a church around today that has the exact same kind of problems. Take, for example, there, there's a lot of churches out there that are really good at teaching sound doctrine. They're, they, they're really just, just hammering that Bible home and having the right belief some of those same churches aren't really good about teaching love and kindness and, and doing those outreach works that we're supposed to do. At the same time, there's a lot of churches out there that are great at preaching love and they're great at preaching forgiveness and they do lots of outreach and missions and helping the poor and hungry. At the same time, some of those same churches are slack on morals and the commands and the expectations God has over our behavior you got some churches out there that are the popular church. They're the energetic church. Everybody is going to the church. It is the end church, the hip church. This is the place to be. They've got all the programs. They've got all the people. They've got the best stuff going on. But if you look below the surface a little bit, you find it's a little shallow and sometimes lacks a lot of substance. There's other churches out there that have had long histories, these beautiful buildings, old stained glass windows, and they've got a lot of money inside them. But they don't practice any effective ministry in the world. But if we're going to survive, if we're going to last through the hardships and challenges that God has promised us that are coming ahead, we need to have a complete faith. 
It has to be a total faith, not a partial one. We've got to have sound doctrine, but we also got to have a heart of love. We've got to have good works, but we also have to have good teachings. We've got to have strong morals, but we also have to have strong conviction. We've got to have a lot of energy, and we've got to have a lot of commitment. Most of all, we're going to survive as a church or survive as believers. Most of all, above all things, we have to cling to Jesus Christ. We have to cling to Him with our heart and our mind and our soul. There are hard times coming ahead. The completion of God's creation is not going to happen with a lot without pain. It's not going to happen without suffering. And unfortunately, a lot of it's going to be directed at us. I mean, God's people. Those who are striving to do good is going to be directed at us. Satan's going to do whatever he can to derail this plan, and he can't hurt God. And a little bit later, we're going to find out that he can't really hurt the church either. But what he can do is go after the people of God. And he's going to go after us with all the pent-up aggression of centuries of supernatural rage. And they're all going to be leveled at the people of God. And if we're going to survive, our faith must be complete. If we're going to survive, our faith must be total, full of love and truth, conviction and strength, with endurance, perseverance, patience, purity, and honesty. But above all, we cannot forget who we are waiting for. We can't forget who we're leaning upon. We can't forget what this is all about and who this is all about and who this is all for. We can't forget where this is all going to end. A few hundred years ago, a new interpretation of Revelation took off. And I'll give you a nice, another big fancy word for it. They call it post-millennialism as opposed to the pre-millennialism. Now, later we can talk about the amillennialism, but I don't want to get you confused right now. But this was the exact opposite of the pre-millennialists, those who say the world is getting worse and worse and worse. This is a view of Revelation that came about in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And instead of believing the world was getting worse, they were believing that the world was getting better. And that the story of the revelation was not the story of the world getting bad and Christ coming to fix things, but it was the story of the new heaven and the new earth being made by the work of the church. And that it was the work of the church that was going to bring about a new millennium, a millennium of peace and prosperity, a world that was nearly perfect. The world's not getting worse, it says. The world's getting better because of what we're doing, the Christians, because of the work of the church. And if we keep at this, we can usher in the good and perfect world. We got the power. We can do it if everybody would just join us and believe. And they really thought it was coming. They really thought a new millennium was coming, brought about by the work of the church. And I can't find probably a more positive message than this. I mean, how uplifting. How energetic. And it's in this view of Revelation that we get the root of all of our ideas about social change and social activism. 
It all began with a vision of biblical utopia brought about by an interpretation of Revelation. I gotta admit, it's a very seductive idea. But remember, I told you, this is a dangerous book. And as seductive as that idea is, it is also a dangerous one. Because in it, we find this idea that we don't have to wait for Jesus to make the world right. We can fix it ourselves. But we can't. We can't fix it ourselves. The post-millennial biblical utopia movement was derailed by a tragedy called World War I. They saw the catastrophic loss of lives, millions of people slaughtered sometimes in a single battle. We realized we can't fix it. We can make the world better. We can even make people good. But we can't make it right. There's only one person that can fix it. It's never going to be fixed until Jesus returns. 20 years ago, we got another reminder of this. America watched in horror as two planes hijacked by foreign terrorists slammed into the World Trade Center. America was changed forever. And if we needed a reminder that we aren't going to fix the world, we got a big one. Watching something like that, watching the news of disasters, the shootings, the disease, growing unbelief and immorality in our culture, we're tempted to think maybe the premillennialist had it right. We tend to look at Revelation one of two ways, either punishment for the wicked or this reward for a good church doing its good work. Revelation has a little bit of both. But I want to challenge you to look at this book a little bit differently. That it's not a punishment for the wicked. It's not just a reward for good. This is a fulfillment of God's plan. This is not the story of God reacting to the world. This is God, not the story of God having to pivot suddenly and come up with a whole new idea because we are doing either really bad or really good. This is God working to perfect His creation. And it's been going on from the very beginning. From Genesis 1, when God says, let there be light, all the way to Revelation 22, when he says, it is finished. He has been in charge. His hand has been at the wheel the entire time. And it's never slipped once. It's true, he, he lets us make our own mistakes. Sometimes he even let us, lets us make our own disasters. But he can do that because none of what we do, none of what Satan does, none of what all the people in the world together can do could alter the perfect plan of God. This is going to happen. What we need to do is to pick our side. It's a dangerous book. A dangerous book to read and it's dangerous because it's been abused. It may be the most dangerous book that has ever been written. So as we explore this book, I urge you to walk with caution. But also walk with faith. 
This is a dangerous book, but it's not meant to be dangerous to us. It's a book that presents the greatest danger to all that is evil, all that is wicked, and all that stands against God in this world. But for us, the people of God, for us, the disciples of Christ, this is the story of our victory. To God be all the glory, forever and ever. Amen.